Hey, good morning, EBF. Very excited to be up here this morning. It's been a little while for me. I think I'm getting rusty. Uh, but I really love when any time I get the opportunity to preach at EBF. Um, I want to, uh, I, I guess, just echo what Rachel said and wish everyone a happy Mother's Day. Uh, I think it's, it's absolutely worth celebrating as a church. Uh, motherhood and the mothers who play such an important part um, of who we are. Uh, I think like when we think of mothers and, and Mother's Day, absolutely, right? Mothers are incredibly important for their own home and their own family. Um, but I think also it's worth recognizing that mothers are really important to us as a community too. Like the presence of mothers, I got to serve with EBF Youth Ministry for six years and interact not just with the students, but with their families and only grew in respect for the mothers that had raised these remarkable students. And, um, and I think I like see the people that my wife hangs out with, her included, like the extraordinary people, like the, the rich gospel ministry that's happening at EBF, it, both in mothers raising kids and, and discipling them in incredible ways, but also each other, watching out for each other and, and protecting each other and encouraging one another and build each other up. I think there's like, there's power in that. And that brings a lot of unspoken, unseen benefits to our community as a church. So just happy Mother's Day, you know, as a church. Uh, and I also, I, I appreciate Rachel bringing up, and I, I also want to acknowledge that Mother's Day is also... I think a complicated day for a lot of people, that, it's, uh, that there's a lot of heartache too and, and for various situations. I lost my mom 10 years and two weeks ago. Uh, and so Mother's Day, like, it's a day that I always still, like, I'm, I'm just, I get to enjoy it because I get to celebrate with the extraordinary mother of my own kids. And so it's still a really great day. But there's always, you know, that memory and that pain of knowing I can't call my mom and honor her and wish her a happy Mother's Day. I believe she's honored. And the truth is, like, I, I need that pain. I still need that. I have to, I want to remember her, and I do want to like, acknowledge that today is still a day for, for my mom, too. And um, so I just think, like, there's, there's people at all different stages of this, right? And, um, and I think, like, I don't know, like, if you're in that, I don't know what you need to hear, what's most encouraging to hear, but I want to say, like, we're just so glad that you are here. We're so glad that you are with us. We're so glad that we are with you, that, um, that you are part of this community. You are so important to us. And, uh, and today's a day, like, we are, we are glad that we get to be among each other on Mother's Day. Um, and, uh, and I, like, Romans 12 says, we rejoice with those who rejoice. We weep with those who weep. And what a powerful testament to the hope that we have in the promise of Jesus when we can do both. Because both is happening, and we do that here as a community. So, um, so happy Mother's Day to all. Um, incidentally, my sermon is on today, hope, the hope that we have in Christ. Um, and, uh, and the power and the effect that that should have in our lives. Um, so our passage comes out of uh, Colossians 1, 24 through 29. Let me open this up in a word of prayer, and uh, we're going we're gonna to talk through it, Okay. Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for the people who are among us. We thank you for the hurt. We thank you for the joy. We thank you for the blessings. Uh, God, we thank you for life. And, uh, and we thank you for our community. Uh, and we give this to you. And we ask, God, that you continue to shape us and teach us what it means to let go of control, let go of understanding, let go of things that we would normally cling to and instead cling to your promises. 
We want to be a community, and we want to be people, we want to be believers that are defined by you, by who you are and what you've done for us, and let that drive us. And so, God, we just ask that you would give us a vision for what it means to be your followers, not just in the moment, but to understand in eternity what it is to be your followers. We pray this in your name. Amen. Jack Johnson and Eddie Vedder, two very famous musicians, Eddie Vedder, Pearl Jam, right? Hall, Rock and Roll Hall of Famer. Incidentally, born in Evanston. That's cool. But, uh, um, you know, so like very famous rock and roll musician. Jack Johnson, also very famous. Maybe not as much, but, but I know his, his album, Brushfire Fairy Tales, was a big one for me in my freshman year of college. That was my anthem, that album. And, uh, but anyways, those two guys are really good friends. They're like known as, as BFFs. Uh, and they, you know, they do a lot of things together. Jack Johnson was recently in Eddie Vedder's most recent wedding, and, uh, and they, like, they, they do a lot of life together, they, um, and so, and, and a lot of activities, they both have a background in surfing. Jack Johnson was actually a professional surfer before he was a rock star, and so, uh, and so, like, he has this huge background, and he grew up practically on the water, uh, and so, like, and Eddie Vedder's a big surfer as well, so they do a lot of ocean stuff together, right? So anyways, Eddie Vedder, in an in a article, uh, an interview with Rolling Stone magazine, Eddie Vedder uh, tells a story about one time when he and Jack Johnson were out on the ocean on a sailboat, a small one, like a little catamaran, right? Um, and, uh, and so they're out sailing, and it's like big ocean swells and stuff, and they flip, overturn in the water, and uh, as happens in sailing. Uh, so they're out there kind of bobbing up and down in the water and like the swells are really big and the mass is pointed down to the ground, you know, to the ocean floor and, uh, and it's getting a little bit dicey and, uh, and Eddie Vedder recounts that he starts to kind of realize sort of the dire of their situation that it's actually a pretty, this is kind of a, a really big deal, like they're in trouble. Uh, but in that moment, as he's kind of sitting there trying to like panic but figure out what to do, he looks over at Jack Johnson and it occurs to him, this is Jack Johnson. He was a professional surfer. This guy lives on the water. Like if anybody, like if you want to be stuck in this situation with anybody, it's Jack Johnson, right? This guy knows what to do. So in that moment, he finds relief, relaxes him, gets a smile on his face, laughs about the situation a little bit. Jack Johnson, also in that moment, looks over at Eddie Vedder, sees Eddie Vedder smiling, and realizes, well, if Eddie Vedder is feeling okay about this, then I should too. So maybe this isn't as bad as I'm freaking out about. Like, we're okay. We're going to be fine. They were. They got the boat upright. They sailed home. But uh, I think it's a powerful idea, and I think this is true. I think this is a, a principle that bears recognizing. Hope is contagious. Hope is a powerful force in our life. Is what drives us, whether it's good hope or false hope, it drives us through our lives, and it happens to be contagious. That is, the people around you are going to draw from what you put your hope in as well. That what you put your hope in not just defines your life and drives your life, but it affects the lives around you as well. So I want to I look into that. Uh, I think Paul defines that a little bit better for us. So we're in Colossians. Now it's sort of a random, like one text out of the book. So I'm gonna, let me offer some context too. Because I think it's worth understanding what's going on here. The book of Colossians, right? The church of Colossae. 
uh, as the church Paul's writing to in a letter, Paul's in prison in Rome, so he's not doing well. Like he's, in, he's suffering, it's, it's a bad situation for him. Uh, he hears news uh, f- through a guy named Epaphras about what's going on in Colossians. Epaphras is basically the church leader there. Might have planted the church, probably did. Uh, but Paul never has been to Colossae himself. He didn't go there. He didn't plant that church. It's not necessarily a church he started, but it's an extension because what's probably happened is like the farthest he got, the closest he got to Colossae, was, which was Ephesus. And Ephesus is still like 100 miles away. So he, what happened is like the gospel traveled from Ephesus, likely, over to Colossae and Laodicea, which is like the neighbor and stuff. And, uh, and so like, and this church has grown out of mostly Gentiles, non-Jewish believers who have come to hear the gospel and a church is growing and it's doing really well and it's being established and the gospel is growing and it's getting farther and farther and farther. That's awesome. That's good news for Paul. Um... And so as it's growing, of course, they're starting to get some competing ideas. People are starting to infiltrate what's happening and ruin what's going on. So the Colossian believers are hearing some lies. And I'm going to name a few of those lies, okay? One lie they're hearing is Epaphras, their leader, is lying and misleading you. Paul doesn't support Epaphras. Like, these are not, they are not on the same page. Like, this is not a good leader. That's one lie they're hearing. Another lie. Paul doesn't even know who you are. He does not care about you. He doesn't know you exist. Whatever problems you have, whatever success you have, he don't care. You're not, on, you're not doing what he, yeah, is something he's invested in. Another lie, Jesus is not God. This one's kind of more philosophical. Jesus is not God. No human being could ever be God. God would not defile himself with humanity. This is like, a, a tenet of Gnosticism that's, that's a, a prevalent idea that's like growing and trying to take hold of the church in that context. And then this last one, which is really important for us. I wanna, this one is like significant for what we're going to read today. If you want to follow the God of Jesus, if you want to be a Christian, if you want to be a follower of God as a Gentile, maybe we'll let you in and this is coming from like the Jewish community. Maybe we'll let you in and call yourself a believer, but you're going to have to behave like a Jew. You're going to have to adopt our customs, our traditions. You're going to have to do follow our rules. And even then, maybe you'll be in, but you're still going to be kind of a second-class believer. You'll never be a true Jew. So, Colossians is Paul addressing some of this stuff. Already, he's established his own apostolic Authority. He's validated Epaphras as a leader for them. Uh, he's been encouraging and commending the Colossians as a church. Uh, he's establishing the preeminence of Christ and dispelling that heresy that, that somehow Jesus is not God. Like he's made that case already. Um, and, uh, and he really wants to tear down the idea that Gentiles are somehow secondary believers. Uh, that they are not on the level that Jews are, and they don't have the same access to God that Jews do. He's going to take care of that swiftly too, and we're going to see him setting the, that stage. And that's going to be important for us to hear. Um, so as we read this, or as we look through this, Colossians takes us on this path of three important truths that I want to share with you that I think, I want, I think is really important for us. Number one, Paul was driven by a profound sense of hope. Paul was driven by a profound sense of hope. Number two, Paul wants us to be driven by that same sense of hope. 
Paul wants us, the believers, Gentiles, Jews, whoever, to be driven by that same sense of hope. And the third is that he wants us to be proclaimers of that hope to anyone and everyone. So let, let's like start with uh, verse 24. I'm going to do this by highlighting some specific phrases that Paul uses. And then we're going to, I'm going to talk specifically about those, and that's going to carry us through our three points. So let me read for you verse 24. It says, and this is in Colossians chapter 1, it says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. I definitely needed to study this one because they definitely read this and didn't understand what he was talking about. It raises this very odd question, right? He says this, this phrase, Christ's afflictions, and says, like, seems to suggest that somehow, like, what, does, what, did, what was lacking or somehow something there was lacking in Christ's afflictions and that Paul needed to fill up, like, that seems kind of far-fetched. It certainly doesn't seem to recognize the completion and the, like the fullness of the sacrifice of Jesus. So I did a deep dive, and I, here's what I found, and I think this is really interesting for me. That phrase, Christ's afflictions, is a trigger phrase. It's referencing something very specific in Scripture. Uh, and it starts in, like, in uh, Daniel and uh, with prophecies of what's to come, end times prophecies, specifically an age in which while Christ suffered and died on earth, that inaugurated and was resurrected, that inaugurated uh, an age that will last until Christ returns, right? So this very specific age uh, that we are in, that the Colossian believers were in, um, and so these scripture references are, are known as the messianic woes. That is, prophecies about what's to come in this age and what has to happen before this age comes to an end. So it's talked about in Daniel. It's talked about in, in Revelation, specifically like chapter 6, and it's talking about the seals and stuff like that. It's sort of like the, kind of the end game and like what it looks like, how this sort of concludes. Um, and pre Jesus even reiterates them in Matthew 24. So I'll, to help us, I'm going to read that. In Matthew 24... I mean, just read like 3 through 14, this, this chunk that's kind of long, but it's, I think it really gives us a profound understanding of where Paul's coming from when he's trying to encourage these believers, okay? So starting at Matthew 24, verse 3, it says, And he sat on the Mount of Olives. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us when these things will be, and what will be a sign of your coming and of the close of the age? And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ. And they will lead many astray. And you will hear, war, hear, sorry, and you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places, and all these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And, you, and then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another, and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. 
but the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So when Paul brings this up with the Colossians, and he's recognizing two circumstances that are at play right now. Number one, Paul's suffering. Paul's in prison. He's enduring a lot of suffering, a lot of persecution, as the whole church is. And, uh, and what he wants to communicate with that is that, listen, did you hear in, the, like, in Christ's afflictions, like part of the, what needs to happen for the end to come, one of the things that we need to understand is promise for us, that before the, the, God's kingdom comes, before Jesus returns, is that we have to suffer. So every time we suffer, we're actually accomplishing something. We're moving closer to the goal. We're drawing nearer to God's kingdom come. Like that's a promise that's happening is the end comes after these things and we have to walk through them to see that happen. So when I suffer, we're making progress. We're doing good. And then the other circumstance that's going on is the church is growing. Colossians is a church that came, that Paul didn't plan himself. It went beyond him. And so he sees very tangibly that all nations are actually being reached, that it's going there. It's on its way. More and more people are hearing the gospel, and not just from him, but from him who shared with other people, who shared with other people, who are sharing with other people, and that's what he wants. So this is a huge marker of success for him. That is, he believes that what, what needs to happen for the end to come, to bring Christ home, no matter, regardless of how we understand like how much actual influence we have over that, the reality is that all nations must be reached. And so when we see that happening, wow, is Paul excited. Wow, is Paul rejoicing. The Colossian church are proof it's working. The gospel is being brought out to the nations. So that suffering, that success of, of the church, like that to Paul rings pure victory. And it, like, it's based on his understanding of the promise of ultimate victory, of the end of victory. And so like, as, he, as he's talking to them, like, he brings up Christ's afflictions because he wants to put this in perspective that it doesn't really matter what's going on other than all this tells us this is working. We're moving forward. So I think when Paul talks about Christ's afflictions and needing to fill up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. I think there's two things that I think we should take away from that. Two things that that should mean for you and me. Number one, every time somebody puts their faith in Christ, for the first time, for the hundredth time, every time we see somebody go farther in their faith, we see somebody transformed by the gospel, we are one step closer to God's kingdom come. That should be exciting for us. That should be something we long for. That should be something we are pursuing. Every time we see people come to Christ, whether we know them, whether it's by extension, we can celebrate, we can rejoice. We are one step closer to God's kingdom come. And we should, we should look forward to that. We should acknowledge that. The second thing that this means for us, let me just say it. I wrote this weeks ago. So whatever news we got this week, this, was, this came before it, all right? Suffering and setbacks are not an indication of failure. 
They're an indication that Christ is at work. For us, suffering and setbacks are not an indication of failure. They are a clear indication that Christ is at work. It's happening. We're moving forward. It's probably going to get worse before it gets better. Maybe immediately, maybe not. I hope not. But like ultimately, right? But it's going to get better. Like we are drawing nearer with each step, small as it might seem, to God's kingdom coming. And when Paul, like that's what drives him. That's what gives him perspective on the suffering that he's going through. That's what gives him perspective on the victories he's experiences. And he wants that for us too. So that brings us to our second point. Paul wants us to be driven by that exact same hope. Let me read verse 27 now. To them God chose to make known how great among the, the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of the mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. It's that phrase, hope of glory, I want to think about. Oftentimes when I tend to use, I don't know, I think we all do, but I'll say for me, uh, when I tend to use that, uh, that term hope, the word hope, in my everyday vernacular, uh, it always comes out as sort of a, a desire for an uncertain outcome, right? It's, when I say hope, it's, I'm expressing a desire for an outcome that is uncertain. I really hope they win. I really hope you're doing great. I hope this doesn't fall apart. I hope you're like, I, I really hope we make it home today. Or I really hope, you know, we have some good food. Or I don't know, like whatever. Like however I use the word hope, it's always like, I'm not sure if this is going to come true. But I kind of want it to. Like it's really want, not hope. But, uh, but what we see is scripture contrasts that really profoundly. That it's not an expression for a desire for an uncertain outcome. It's an expression of desire for a guaranteed outcome. Hope is an expression of a desire for a guaranteed outcome. I'll prove it. There's some verses I want to share with you. This is just a few of, the, of a lot, but this is how we hear Scripture talking about hope. I mean, I think they're going to show up behind me. I'm just going to go one after another, kind of rapid fire, just to give you some passages that name hope, that talk about hope, okay? Starting with, excuse me, starting with 2 Corinthians 4, 17 through 18. For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory. Beyond all comparison, as we look not to things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Ephesians 1.18 Having the eyes of our hearts enlightened, that you may know what it is, what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. 1 John 3.2-3 Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Titus 3, 4 through 7, But when the goodness of, and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of, and by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Romans 8, 
24 through 25, for in this hope we are saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? What, but if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. And Hebrews 11.1, 1, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Hope in Christ is a con- an expression of desire for a guaranteed outcome. It's letting our belief in God's promises in eternity dictate our understanding of our present circumstances. It's living our lives with eternity in view. So can I offer one suggestion? Can we try to suppress the cartoon hope that I know I'm guilty of? Do you know what I mean? Like, like Popeye, right? Remember Popeye? Right? And like he would just be kind of this dopey guy with sailor with muscles and stuff like that, but never really able to pull it together until like the crisis happened. And then in that moment, he'd fill his pipe with, with uh, spinach and suck it in through his pipe. And then all of a sudden, he'd get this superpower and be able to conquer whatever, save olive oil, and then she would ultimately still go back to the other guy. That was a weird, weird cartoon, I think. But, like, right, but this idea that, like, we can just, like, go do our own thing whenever, and then, like, when we need it, we just generate it up really hard, and we work really hard, and we create our own hope, and we, we make it happen. Or I think, like, Roadrunner, right? This is me. This is me. Desperately trying to get one step ahead of anything, of what, like, my problems, uh, but never doing that, like, always being one step behind and getting so frustrated because, like, I, I got to get one step ahead of my, my circus. I got to get one step ahead of everything. I got to work. I got to get this done. I got to get this figured out. I got to pull this together um, or it's failure. And so when that failure inevitably happens, having to wrestle with how do I explain this away so that it doesn't look like failure? How do I spin this so people are still looking like this is somehow a success and, and thinking that I accomplished this thing that I definitely didn't accomplish? Like, and so I finally I go through this internal wrestle of like, how do I, how do I present this in a, in a positive light and how do I like hide the fact? that I feel like I've lost, that I've, I feel like a failure. And I think like that's me buying into this idea that I can manage my death, I can control this situation, I can get one step ahead. And also buying into the lie that my present circumstances dictate what is and is not failure in my life. That the problems dictate what is and is not failure. And then when I hide that, right, what does that communicate to the people around them? I kind of expect them to do the same. Like, we don't talk about our problems. We don't deal with our, our issues here. Like, we only talk about the success or the way we spun that problem or, or whatever. And so, like, we, I wind up hiding behind, uh, like, the, the me that I'm afraid people will find out about. I feel like that's, like, roadrunner hope in my mind. But I just think, like, we tend to... Treat hope like we can like, find a way. Or we look to our circumstances, to our left or to our right. We try to find different ways to achieve success or to measure what's right and what's wrong, what's good, like what's, uh, what's failure. And then when we don't, when it doesn't get that for us, we hide it. And we are ashamed of it. I think it's true about sin, right? Like when we think about the power that knowing our eternity, eternity is secure, what that should do to the way we treat sin. And that still, still, I 
avoid confessing it. I avoid dealing with it as if somehow, like, I can control it. Or as if somehow, if people found out about this, like, it would ruin me. But it can't. Sin can't. Like, how, do you, how does it feel? Like, do you realize that you have accomplished victory over sin already? Maybe not in present circumstances. It's still a battle. But the victory has been won. The victory has been accomplished. And so when we look, live our lives with the eternity view, in view, it starts to dictate these things for us, our perspectives on our issues, on our sin, on our problems, and our successes too. They go into this different perspective of understanding that the victory is in Jesus always and always. And that's good for us. That's hope for us. Hope that is expression of a guaranteed outcome. We end well. This all ends well for us. C.S. Lewis talks about in his, his sermon and book, Weight of Glory, five promises that Jesus makes for us that we can find hope in, that we can put our faith in and, and should shape the way we trust him. And these are kind of... Um, Loosely paraphrased, but here they are. Number one, we will be like Jesus is one promise that we have. Number two, we will be with Jesus. Number three, in Jesus, our needs and desires will be met in abundance. And number four, we will have importance in heaven. And number five, we will know and experience glory. Those are the five promises that God gives us and should dictate how we live our lives, should affect how we make our decisions and view our present circumstances. When your faith is in Christ, hope of glory is living our lives with eternity in view. Uh, and, and when we do that, the kind of effect it has on us, right? Like think about the difference that can make. Some examples, it empowers us when we are weak. It gives us courage when we're frightened. It gives us vision for the future. It gives us joy in suffering. It gives us compassion for the lost. And that brings us to our third point. Paul wants us to be proclaimers of that hope to anyone and everyone. Check out verse 28. Him we proclaim, warning everyone, teaching everyone with all wisdom, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. That phrase, him we proclaim, is the last one I want to dwell on. Remember Daddy Vader, Jack Johnson's story? Like, they, they found hope in each other. It might have been false hope, but it worked. It got the job done for the day. Um, but I believe that when our faith is in Christ and the promises of Christ, the future understanding of victory in him, of Christ's kingdom come, of the the prophecies that we know will come true, when we put our faith in that, and that becomes what, where we draw our hope from, then that becomes a rather infectious thing. And you may, maybe you can relate more when you see it in other people. When you see somebody who has that, who has that sense of vision for the future and optimism for what God is going to do, or when they have, you know, courage, and, and they're empowered when they're weak, right? Like when they, when they, when you experience somebody who's sincere compassion for the lost. And you look at them and you think, I want that too. I want to be more like that. 
Because it's contagious. You see it in somebody. It's a godly attribute. It's coming from God. And it draws us in and it makes us want that. And I think that's a powerful force. And that's what hope does for us and for the people around us. And not only that, but he says everyone three times over in the same sentence. Warning everyone. Teaching everyone. That we may present everyone mature in Christ. It kind of sounds like Paul really cares about everyone having access to that kind of hope. And he believes, and this is true, we're that access, that hope for everyone. It means we don't get to disqualify other people from how we approach them or who we approach. We don't get to stay away from certain kind of people because we don't think they're ready or we don't think they're going to receive it from us. So we we avoid people because we don't think we have enough in common or they're going to they're understand what we're trying to talk about. Like It means we actually have to invest in the lives of other people, not just the ones that come easy, but the ones that come really hard too. The ones that we don't understand and don't agree with and don't necessarily even want to spend time with, that we have to go out of our way and make sure we're involving ourselves in the lives of other people. They're branching out because we have a duty. Like We want to see God's kingdom come. We want to see the end of this age when Jesus comes back. It also means that we don't get to, so we don't get to disqualify other people. It means we don't get to disqualify ourselves either. Because we have hope, this is the one most profound thing that we have to offer the world around us. And it doesn't take that much talent or skill or charisma or whatever you think it needs. Like, it doesn't take it. We don't have to look and feel and behave like everyone else in order to represent the hope that is found in Christ. So it means like we don't get to disqualify ourselves because we don't think we can. We don't think we have what it takes. That's like the call for us is to go, to do it, to involve ourselves in the world around us, to put on display the hope that we have. And if you're wondering even more, like, how do I actually do that? How do I actually put on display? The all the advice I can really give is start with that one, compassion for the lost. Just try that. Try compassion for the lost. If you don't already feel that now, if you don't have a sense of compassion for the lost, well, it's okay. God forgives you. Now you can start trying. You can start working on that. You can start thinking about what it takes and what they need and what, like, how, yeah, like, what is, what is broken and understanding that, that, like, they deserve Christ's redemption in their life, too. And if they're missing out on that, that should break our hearts a little bit. Compassion for the lost is a powerful way to start being a representative of God's hope to the world around us, to be a proclaimer of hope. So it's also important that we don't try to make people feel like they need to look, act, behave, think the exact same way that you and I do, or any of us. Uh, it's important that we, we allow for differences. We allow for diversity. In fact, we pursue it. We don't, it's not, that's not an essential. And that, uh, that we believe that it doesn't, it doesn't matter, like that, that people do it our way, that people like fit in with your life. That, that cannot be 
um, a prerequisite in order for you to be able to share the gospel or represent hope to somebody else. It means that we have to allow for people to be people, for be, them to be who they are, to not establish extra rules that they need to uh, follow in order for them to be able to hear the gospel from you or to see Jesus in your life. we got to get rid of that. I believe that hope is contagious. That it really is only found in Jesus Christ. And if you have hope, that's worth proclaiming to the world. All right. I'm going to wrap this up. I want you to be a part of it. All right? Here's our conclusion. We started off naming some of the lies that the Colossians were hearing that Paul wanted to dispel. So let's do this. I'm going to share with you some lies. I'm going to just throw out a, a lie. And what I want you to do, if you believe that is in fact a lie, I want you to call it out verbally. All right? We're going to go down the list. So you can, you can do your own spin. Like, you can be like, no, that's not true. You can be like, boo. Like, Brady, I feel like this is, this is your moment. Like, you can, you can boo. You can just call it out. That's not true. That's a lie. Stop it, no more. Whatever, however you want to spin it, it's fine. But you need to reject the lies. I need to hear you. Got it? Let's do this. All right, we're good. You are not a good enough example of Jesus. Jesus is tired of dealing with all your problems. You are not accomplished enough. Dev, not done. <laughs> you are not accomplished enough to have any influence on other people's lives. You are experiencing too many setbacks until you can get a handle on your own life. You shouldn't be telling other people what a difference Jesus can make in theirs. All right. They are not like you. You can't tell them they need Jesus. We're losing steam. Do you think that's true? No. Let's try it again. They are not like you. You can't tell them they need Jesus. No. All right. You are alone in this fight. No. All right. Jesus still hasn't made his mind up about you yet. If the Christians in your life knew the real you, they wouldn't want you here. Some of you, I think I'm worried, might actually believe that's true. If the Christians in your life knew the real you, they better want you here. And you better want them here too. All right, let's try some truth, shall we? Can you bring me some, some affirmation of truth? Amen. That's right. That's the truth. Sing it. Whatever. All right. For those who are in Christ Jesus, you have influence. You are welcomed into God's kingdom no matter who you are. You are an important part of seeing God's kingdom come. Jesus has made a difference in your life whether you feel it or not. Your future is secure. Yeah. 
The trials you face now are worth enduring because Jesus is real. You are guaranteed hope of glory. The hope that you have in Christ means hope for other people. Good. All right. I think you get it. The more you realize the difference that Christ makes in your life, and the more you find his hope in his promises for you, the more contagious that hope becomes, the more powerful that hope becomes. The reality of Christ means hope for you, and hope for you means hope for the world. Let's pray. Jesus, you have told us that you will bring us to heaven to be with you. You have told us that you will make us like you. You will give us abundance. God, you will give us significance. God, you will make us secure. You give us eternity. You give us glory. God, we are so grateful. And we recognize that we forget that sometimes. We get caught up in trying to control, manage, or hide what's going on. As if somehow you've lost your power. But today we recognize that's not true. Your victory is real. Our future is secure. Our hope is in you. We praise you for that. In your name I pray. Amen.